Well, one of the great rites of passage for most teenagers is the process of taking driver's education. And uh, I remember this class vividly. And back when I took driver's ed, I'm not sure if they still do this, but uh, before they would let you actually get into a car, uh, you had to spend a certain number of hours in a simulator, right? So you would go into a trailer and there would be desks lined up and they would have fake steering wheels and gear shifts uh, sitting next to this desk. And on a big screen in front of you, somebody had taken video of a car driving through neighborhoods and on highways and city streets. And uh, it was supposed to get you prepared to actually drive a car. In reality, it did nothing of the sort, right? I can pretend to drive a car on my sofa, right? And just go like this. Uh, but it was supposed to accomplish that. But the interesting thing was that um, the scenarios they presented you while you were driving were also quite extreme. So as you drove down a neighborhood, there were frequently people who would just swing their doors open and walk out into the street without looking. Or dogs who would try to run under your tires or children would throw a ball and run in and uh, you expected clowns to start parachuting from the sky, landing on your windshield. And it was crazy. And I remember taking this class and watching all of these things happen and thinking, uh, if this is what driving is really like, I had best stay home Uh, because I don't think there's any way to defend myself actually against this assault of obstacles that they're implying happens as soon as you get in that car. Uh, And as I think about that experience, uh, I cannot help but think that the early Christians to whom Paul and the apostles wrote the New Testament must have felt quite similar as they sought to uh, walk out their faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture and a world that was hostile to them. Because everywhere they stepped, it seemed like there were obstacles. Uh, As you look at the book of Philippians in particular, which we're going to talk about this morning, In the book of Philippians, this is a group of people who they're doing relatively well, it seems, in their walk with Christ, but they're facing all kinds of issues. Uh, They are facing heretical teaching coming in from the outside. So there are teachers coming in and saying, if you want to know God, the Jesus thing is great, but you really need to obey the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law as well. And so Paul is exhorting them to stand firm in the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, They are also facing a bit of persecution, perhaps not official governmental persecution at this point, but it seems like their homes are being confiscated, Uh, their property is being taken, they are experiencing ridicule uh, and loss of prestige from those around them. Uh, They're facing internal strife. There are arguments among people in the church. And in fact, uh, chapter four, right at the beginning of chapter four, Paul singles out two ladies, Uodia and Syntyche, and says, you two ladies, get along. How'd you like to go down forever in the word of God with that exhortation? And so these people are facing all of these trials, all of these problems, all of these difficulties. And the question is, how do we walk out our faith in Jesus Christ uh, when we're living in clearly a sinful and broken world? And it's interesting, as you read through the book of Philippians, the exhortation that Paul consistently gives them is to rejoice. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Eight times he uses that verb in the book of Philippians. The noun for joy he uses another seven or eight times. Uh, He uses the adverb and the adjective as well. Over and over and over again, this theme of joy emerges from the book that the response, the proper response for a believer in Jesus Christ when you are facing trials and difficulties and challenges is joy. 
And that seems so counterintuitive. Because when my circumstances are not going as I'd like, uh, joy is not necessarily the first thing that comes to my mind. And yet for Paul, he recognizes that for the Christian, joy is this deep and abiding sense of God's presence and assurance of God's promises. That no matter what's going on out here, I can trust that he'll never leave. That the love of Jesus endures forever. That because I believed in him, I have an inheritance that is greater than anything I've lost. And so he exhorts them over and over again. Rejoice, rejoice. And as we look at this passage, the thing that we'll notice is that Paul actually begins here with actions of joy. Which will then lead to an attitude and an experience of joy and peace. We're so accustomed to thinking my feelings have to come first. I have to feel joyful, then I will act joyful. Paul seems to flip that on his head. He says, begin to act joyful, respond as people who are joyful, and then the peace and the joy of God will rest on your life. In Philippians chapter four, this is a command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, just in case you didn't hear it the first time, I'll say it again, rejoice. Uh, this past spring, uh, we, my wife and I took our three little kids to the Blue Bonnet Festival up in Chapel Hill. It was a wonderful opportunity just to get out of the house, uh, get the kids some uh, cotton candy and uh, go experience some rides and a petting zoo and all these sort of fun things. But as we got out of the car and we began to head toward this carnival and we began to experience all the fun activities, uh, as kids often do, uh, they began to complain. I don't like hot dogs. It's too hot. I feel sweaty. Can we go back to the car? Can we eat at Chili's? And uh, finally, <laughs> as parents often do, in response to that, we looked at them. We said, look, we brought you here to have fun. Uh, we are buying you fun things. There are fun rides. There are animals. You will have fun. <laughs> right? Rejoice. Right? It's a command. And what Paul recognizes is he says, look, if you act joyful, sometimes you begin to feel joyful. My guess is that uh, there are many of us in this room this morning who through the course of Thanksgiving, although externally we were thanking God, it may be that internally we began uh, not feeling joyful. That there were circumstances that shrouded our life that caused us not to feel peaceful, joyful, happy, grateful when we got to Thanksgiving. Uh, I know for my own family, Troy mentioned it a few minutes ago, uh, we experienced Thanksgiving to some degree under the shadow of death because my grandfather passed away yesterday. And as you know, uh, no matter when you experience death, no matter when you face it, whether somebody is young, whether somebody is old, whether it's expected, not expected, it always feels like an intruder and a violation and a theft because it's not natural. And as men and women who live with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, we live under the shadow of death. And we worry about the things that permeate our lives that make us afraid that we won't be able to live a life like the one we hope for. And so for some of us, perhaps you're facing economic uncertainty and you went into Thanksgiving with a great deal of anxiety and fear and worry and bitterness. For some, maybe it is the loss of a loved one over the course of this past year that made you sad. For some, maybe it's tension among family members or the fatigue of living 
in a world that is hostile at times to your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it is your health. And so we live in the midst of these shadows. Yeah, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice. How do we do that? What does it look like to be a man or a woman of joy when the circumstances around me seem so broken? How do I rejoice? And like I said, Paul begins with actions and then the result and the consequences of obedience and joy is that the peace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit will fill our minds and hearts. So what does a joyful person look like? How can I be joyful even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of trial? Where Paul begins, how do we live as joyful people? Again, Philippians chapter four, begin in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He begins by saying this, extend grace to others because of the joy that has been given to us in Jesus Christ, because Jesus has extended grace to us and we know that we have eternal life. Then we turn around and we extend that grace to others. This let your gentle spirit be known to all men. In some of your versions that may say, let your reasonableness be known to all men. The idea of this uh, gentle spirit is that I have a spirit that puts up with the faults and the sins and the frustrations of others. And I extend to them the mercy and the grace of God as it was extended to me in Jesus Christ. So when I sit down on Thanksgiving and I've worked hard at this meal and Uncle Fred begins to criticize the pie, I don't have to take that pumpkin pie and smash it in his face. As much as I would like to, as much as it feels like the right thing to do in the moment, I can extend grace. When my family or my coworkers or my friends cause me to feel angry, bitter, because perhaps they don't line up with my values. Perhaps they're hostile to my faith in Christ. I can extend grace. I can pray for them. I can encourage them. I can share the message of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That's reasonableness, a gentle spirit to reflect the love of Jesus Christ, even when I don't feel like. And the motivation Paul uses for that action is that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And this is a great phrase that's used throughout the New Testament. It's used in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 8, the Lord is near. Uh, We see that concept work its way even through the Old Testament, Psalm 73. After talking about the wickedness of evil men, the psalmist said, the nearness of my God is my good. And it's a great little phrase because it packs a lot of meaning into one little phrase. And I think there are two ideas that Paul is intending to imply with this phrase. First of all, God is very literally here, near with us. When you are suffering, when you are tempted to feel bitter, when you are tempted to be angry, he's here. He's near you. And if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit lives in you and empowers you to react as Jesus reacted to those who were hostile to him. He is very literally near. But there's another meaning and another motivation that weaves its way particularly through the New Testament, and that is he's coming back soon. His coming is near. And the early church lived in constant expectation that at any moment our Savior would appear. And when he appeared, death would be done away with. 
Sickness and loss and sadness would be put to right. Justice would be done for those who wronged God's people. And you and I will face Jesus Christ and be evaluated. And in light of that, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. There's a day coming when everything will be set right. Uh, Sometimes as I'm driving down Highway 6, attempting to stay within the speed limit, Somebody will zip past me at 80, 85, 90 miles an hour, cut me off and move on down the highway. And uh, if you're like me, that engenders hatred in my heart. Why should they get away with something that I can't get away with? But sometimes as you drive along the road, you look over and you see that same car on the side of the highway in front of a police car with its lights on. And as you drive by, you go, justice has been served, right? You wave and you think, I will now get there before him. I win. Justice has been served. Don't you just feel that in your heart when things seem like they are taken care of, everything's tied up nicely and justice is done. We all want that. We long for that. And the reality is that that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes that guy going 90 gets there before you and no one pulls him over. Sometimes justice is not done. Wrongs are not righted right now. But Paul says, look, you can extend the grace of Jesus Christ because he's extended it to you, first of all. You were not given justice. You were given forgiveness and grace. And then we also recognize the day is coming when justice will be complete. Everything will be set right. So we don't need to worry, take revenge, grow bitter, grow angry but we can rejoice that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ and that he is returning to set everything right. Uh, I ran across a story earlier this year about a man named Bernie Ecclestone. That name may or may not be familiar to you. Uh, Bernie Ecclestone is a British CEO of Formula One Racing. He is a billionaire and uh, he's worth probably about $4.2 billion dollars. Uh, by the most recent estimates. Uh, A couple of years ago, he was out with his girlfriend walking down the street late at night and he was mugged and he was beaten and the muggers took uh, about $200,000 worth of cash and jewelry that he had on his person. And uh, first thing I thought when I read that is I'd love to have that much cash and jewelry to steal, period. Not to mention on me while I'm out for the evening. Among other things, they took a very expensive watch worth tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, The brand is a Hublot, a watch I had never heard of before reading this story because I will never have one. Uh, It is extremely expensive. Uh, But here is what Bernie Ecclestone decided to do. Uh, After he was mugged and beaten, the, the police took a picture of his battered face. He sent that picture to the marketing department at Hublot with a note. See what people will do for a Hublot? And they used it as an ad. It went out all across the country. Now, why can Bernie Ecclestone laugh at the loss of $200,000 and a very expensive watch? Because he has $4 billion, right? It's a small loss for him. It would be a devastating loss for most of the rest of us. Paul says, look, the Lord is near. And you have an inheritance that is much, 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 much greater than anything you're going to lose. And so you can rejoice 
knowing that God's promises are true. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, his love endures forever. The promise of eternal life lasts forever. Nothing can separate you from that love. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, then the message of this passage for you this morning is that you can know that you have an eternal inheritance, eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus stepped in front of death for you, he died in your place because you and I have sinned against God. He rose again. He defeated death and sin. And to those who believe, he promises eternal life. And Paul says, in light of that, Christian, you don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. You don't need to allow circumstances to steal the joy away from your heart. But you rejoice, rejoice, and extend grace to others as a reflection of the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, extend grace to others. And then he moves on in verses six and seven. He says, uh, we live as joyful people when we defeat anxiety through prayer. Look at verses six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus If you feel anxious and worried, he says, if the, if the stress of life, if the stress of family this past week, if the stress of your job and your financial situation and the specter of death make you worry and fear, the solution is to pray about everything. Constantly. Bring these requests before God. One commentator put it this way. The way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. The way to be anxious about nothing is is to pray about everything. That's exactly what Paul is saying. I have little doubt that many of us in this room struggle with worry and anxiety. I do. Perhaps you do as well. That even the threat of something that might happen bad in the future can make you stay awake at night, tossing and turning. Earlier this year, uh, my wife and I were selling one house. We were planning to move into another house. And in the process of uh, a home inspection, we had a contract on the old house and uh, we were planning to move into this other one. In the process of the home inspection, inspector, as they often do, uh, found some things that weren't right with the old house. Uh, One of which was a tree that was sitting next to the house that was doing what trees often do when they sit next to houses. Its roots were beginning to move under the house and cause it to shift. And uh, in light of this information, which we were unaware of prior to the inspection, uh, the buyer on the old house uh, was having second thoughts. And I remember thinking at the time, this could cost me a lot of money, more than I have available in my wallet at the moment. And I remember worrying about it. We could lose this house. We could, all these things could happen and stressed about it. And I'm outside. Uh, my kids are playing and I'm supposed to be playing with them, except I'm not focused because I'm worried and I'm stressed. And I'm playing out all of these terrible scenarios in my mind of my own financial ruin and sitting there staring into space, not paying attention. And they're swinging back and forth, right? And I looked over at one point and I saw my eight-year-old daughter who was in first grade at the time. And, uh, she was kind of just staring off into space, a little frown on her face. And so I kind of pulled myself out of my own thoughts for a moment. And I said, what's wrong, Elizabeth? And she said, I can't focus on playing right now. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, why not? What what is the problem? She said, well, um, I'm worried. I said, worried about what? She said, I have 
a project due tomorrow, and mommy's supposed to help me with it, but mommy went out to run some errands, and she's not going to be back until almost dinner time, and then uh, dinner time is going to come, and it's going to be about time, and I'm going to have to go to school tomorrow, and I'm not going to have this project done, and, and, I'm, and I'm not going to be able to turn it in, and she, she begins to lay out all of these possible consequences of what will happen if she can't get it done, and I looked into her face, and I said, I don't struggle with anxiety, and neither should you, right? Right? Okay, now actually, I looked into her face and I said, uh, your face looks like what I imagine mine looks like right now. So let's pray. And I, I sat down on the swing next to her and while we were rocking in the breeze, uh, sat down and we prayed that God would give us peace and trust in him. You know, and as we finished that prayer, uh, I had this realization that it really in the grand scheme of eternity, did not matter how these situations turned out. Although in the long run, yeah, this buyer backed out, God took care of us. She turned in her paper on time, her situation worked out, but even if it had not, what happened was a small shift in perspective in our heart. That we remembered that the promises of God are true, that his love still endures that we still have a promise of eternal life. And because of that, we can look at the challenges, look at these fears, look at these worries, and not allow them to overwhelm us or destroy us. Paul says, when you pray and you bring that anxiety before the Lord, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That Greek term for guard has the idea of a military detachment that would often stand in front of a city and guard it from attack. If you think about, as an image, the way the Secret Service guards the president, you don't get near the man unless they allow you to get near. I had a friend a few years ago that uh, was in Washington, D.C., and he was driving down Pennsylvania Avenue, and at the time, his registration on his car had expired. He hadn't been able to get back to Texas to renew it. This was before the days of being able to do that online. And uh, he was pulled over by the Secret Service, who is in charge of Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, Pulled him out of his car, asked him a bunch of questions, placed him in handcuffs, put him in a little room, cuffed him to a chair, kept him there for hours, interrogated him, took a cash donation, let him go. Right? (laughs) And what's the message? Well, they told him the message. If you come near the president or his place with the specter of criminal activity, we're going to make sure you don't come back until it's taken care of. They guard. What Paul says is when we bring our request before God, the peace of God stands guard over your heart so the enemy's lies cannot get in. So anxiety cannot overwhelm. That's how strong the Spirit of God is when we pray. And we pray with gratitude, with thanksgiving, to remind us of God's goodness in Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life, and I don't know uh, how your prayer life is, but if I'm honest, often I spend more time worrying about things than I pray about things. Uh, The hours and minutes that I have ticked away, lying awake, worrying about what might happen, uh, tends to overwhelm the number of times that I have spent praying about things that might happen. 
Paul says the way that we experience the joy of God is when we're tempted to worry. Every moment, we bring it before God in prayer. So we don't just pray in the morning, at mealtimes, and at night. But every day, every hour, as we face the trials of this life and even the potential trials of this life, we bring them before God in prayer and allow the peace of God through his spirit to guard our hearts and minds and to produce in us a joy that goes well beyond any circumstances. A joy that is deeper and longer lasting than any circumstances of this life. So Paul says, joyful people extend grace to others because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They pray in the midst of anxiety and allow the peace of God to transform them. And thirdly, we fill our minds with those things that are good. Look at verses eight and nine. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says, if you want to be a person of joy, you fill your mind with these things that are good and right and true and noble and pure and lovely, excellent, praiseworthy, all of these things. The idea is this, that your character will become like that you fill your mind with. You will take on the character of that with which you fill your brain. Those things you allow inside your head on a daily basis will shape you into a particular kind of person, either a person who is joyful or a person who is angry, either a person who is filled with the word of God or a person who is filled with the lies of the enemy. How you fill your mind determines your character. And so he says, if you want to be joyful, if you want to have a reservoir of peace and joy, even when things are not going well in your circumstances, you fill your mind with all of the things of truth. When I was a freshman in college, I lived on South Side in one of the dorms, Dunn Hall, which is uh, in the commons. And uh, back then, the dorms were divided by gender. I realize now most of them are not, but uh, there were men's dorms and there were women's dorms. And in the commons, uh, half of the dorms, two of them were men's dorms and two of them were women's dorms. And what was interesting was that uh, you could immediately tell which was which as soon as you walked in by the aroma that greeted you (laughs) as you climbed the stairs. Because in the men's dorms, it was a a musty sort of aroma of unwashed clothes and sweat and food that had been left out and all kinds of uncleanness that filled that building. Uh, In the women's dorm, it was an overpowering aroma from years of overapplied perfume that would (laughs) greet you as soon as you walked in the door. And you knew which was which because the dorm itself took on the character of that that filled it. And your mind is no different. If we look into your mind, what do we see? Do we see it filled with the lies of the world because we just allow a steady stream of junk and filth in from the internet, from television, from our music, from other people who are speaking to us anxiety and fear and lies? And do we just allow it to build up all of this gunk that then affects our character? Or do we fill it 
with the word of God. When we talk about what we fill our minds with, of course, uh, many of us go to things like pornography where we think, uh, I should not look at these particular sinful things online. And that is true. But I also think there are subtler dangers that face us. Perhaps it is for you that you go on to Pinterest and you look and you say, every other wife and mom is making pies this Thanksgiving in the shape of a pterodactyl. And all I can do is order a pizza. And I am low, lower than the scum of the earth, right? Because my worth is determined by what I produce. Maybe it is you go onto Facebook and you go, why is it that everybody else on Facebook is always happy and having parties and not inviting me? (laughs) And my worth is determined by what people think of me and which parties I go to and who likes me and whether I have 50 friends or 5,000. And I begin to listen to these lies that the circumstances of my life ought to determine my joy. And as I fill my mind with these lies of the world, it changes the way I act. So maybe it is that when I lost patience with my kids, it wasn't something that happened out of the blue but it was a response to weeks and months and years of conditioning myself to believe that I have a right to children who don't talk back, to believe that my worth is based in how other people view my family. On the other hand, he says, when we fill our minds with those things that are true, we develop through the power of the Spirit a reservoir of truth to go back to in those moments. To say that the power of God has redeemed me from death and the peace and the joy of God come from remembering his promises. So in addition to prayer, I saturate myself with his word. And maybe that means that I turn off some of the other things I'm watching. If you are here and you believe that what you watch or listen to does not impact your attitude and your actions, you're kidding yourself. I can remember uh, a year or two ago, there was a TV show that several people had recommended to Shannon and me. And so I uh, decided to check it out, began to watch it. And after episode one or two, uh, it, it was just filled with filth, with inappropriate material. And I remember thinking, well, maybe the people who uh, recommended it to me, uh, just maybe they weren't thinking clearly, or maybe it is that the show gets better. So I watched one or two more and it didn't get better. Finally, I thought, you know, I can continue to kid myself and think that yeah, this is going to be, it's going to get okay, right? Maybe season five is better. Or I can turn it off and a lot, not allow my mind to be washed over with these lies. But instead, I saturate my mind with the word of God. With all those things, look at this list of characteristics, whatever is true, it is whatever is opposed to the lies of the enemy that comes from the word of God, because every word that he speaks is true. Whatever is honorable, those things that are above reproach, that are good, whatever is right. In other words, that which meets the standards of God, which fits his understanding of what we ought to do and think and speak, whatever is pure, that is, it's not mixed with sin or deception or lies, but it is purely focused on knowing and worshiping God in Jesus Christ. Whatever is lovely, 
those things that are uh, beautiful, that are good, that are wonderful, whatever is of good repute, those things that are praiseworthy. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And as we fill our minds with the truth of God, then we become men and women of the peace of God and of his joy. I can think of a few people throughout the course of my life that just exuded the joy of Jesus Christ. That when pressure came and they were squeezed, what came out was not anger, bitterness, frustration, but instead the word of God and peace. I think of an older woman that went to the church Shannon and I attended in Dallas. It's in her 80s. And as she approached you to talk to you, you could see it on her face, the joy and peace of God. Her circumstances were not always easy. She had experienced financial hardship, loss of a husband, health problems. And yet I wanted to just be in her orbit sometimes for a while because I would walk away knowing that I had brushed the peace of God. And as I see men and women like that, I think I want to be like that. How does that happen? Through a lifetime lived in dependence upon the Spirit as we saturate our mind and our heart with what is true, with what is right. We bring each fear and anxiety to the presence of God and we allow the Spirit of God to move through us to extend grace and mercy and kindness to others even when we don't feel like it. So at a time like Thanksgiving, when everybody tells us to be happy and we don't always feel like it. We can dig into this well of peace and grace that's been poured into us by the Spirit of God over time and exude the joy of Jesus Christ. So the world around says, that's what a person looks like when they're representing Jesus and his joy his ability to forgive, his ability to be merciful. The question is, will you and I then begin to seek joy by the power of God's spirit through prayer, through saturating our mind with his word, through obedience, so we can be the sort of people that reflect that mercy and grace of Jesus Christ over the course of a lifetime. Whatever is causing you to experience a loss of joy. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is that there is the specter of death hanging over you or your family. Maybe it is that you really are struggling with some financial difficulty, or maybe it's your grades. Maybe it is a conflict with another. Paul says rejoice, not because of the circumstances, but in the face of them knowing that you have been given an inheritance that is much greater than anything you will lose. Knowing that the peace of God can fill your heart because the spirit of God is within you. And Jesus has promised you his presence and his power. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Father, I confess like many that I often allow worry, anxiety, fear, bitterness, anger, to tarnish my attitude. Father, forgive us. Allow us to pursue joy, not in our strength, but through your spirit as we read the word of God, 
as we submit our lives to you. And allow us to extend and give mercy and grace to those who wrong us, those who frustrate or anger us, those who do not share our values so we can reflect Jesus Christ. Father, I know there are some in here, even this morning, who are sad. I pray you'd encourage them. Father, there are some who are angry. I pray speak to them and remove the anger and fear. There are some who are just worried about what might happen. I pray remove that anxiety. Let the peace of God stand guard over our hearts. Father, we love you. We pray that you would help us trust you. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.